listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So a couple things just right off the top. You may be wondering why I have a black eye. And I'm just, I'm just here to tell you that because one practices Zen doesn't mean you're not a badass. Okay, that's a, it's a Zen bar fight. Um, you should have seen the other two guys. They were, uh, say, uh, had a little, little thing removed. And it was so funny, this... this uh, the doctor was a very, very young um, ophthalmologist, which sends all sorts of uh, kind of alarms when you see someone that's like really, really young. And I'm thinking, have you ever worked on someone's eyeball before? <laughs> and she very calmly, she was just, she was a master. She just said, she said, this is a comparatively simple surgery and should go, you know, off without, without a hitch as long as I don't drop a scalpel. And she was, she was joking. But it, it was one of those moments where I kind of hitched a little bit, you know. And, uh, and so she, she proceeded. I just had a, I had a little cyst in my eye that she just kind of scooped out. But it was it was remarkable how I had, um, uh, as some of you you may know, a, a bit of a uh, um, an obsession with James Joyce when I was in in college. I was really into a lot of the stuff that he had written. Um, just it was it was so creative and freeing and bizarre, and at the same time, it kind of made sense at a level that was deeper than most other. Um, you know, literary giants, at least in my view. And I remember um, I had a teacher my senior year in high school who was uh, first kind of turned me on to this guy's work. And she went through, she was a bit of a scholar herself, and she went through this whole thing about how this guy, James Joyce, spent much of his adult life dealing, quite frankly, with, with, with needles and surgical instruments being uh, put into his eyes. Uh, he had a horrible, horrible set of eye problems and so forth that he dealt with his entire life. And I remember as I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm watching this kind of go on, it's just, just be right here with the whole thing. And I'm watching needles come at me and everything. I'm just trying to be there. The practice really paid off in those moments. Um, and it was yet another reminder of how this doesn't end. This work doesn't end. It, it's continual. It's, it's the way we participate in life. It's another way of thinking and another way of being and another way of moving bodily in the world. All three components. The way we think in mind, 
the way our mind approaches our experience, the way the simple elegance of being is able to participate in what it is that we're doing, whatever it is that we're doing. And then lastly, how we move, how our body meets this experience. For all of us, for all of us. Uh, And I was really taken with the sensitivity and care of this uh, very young appearing, appearing doctor. Her skill, her, the way she was able to assure and so forth. Um, I don't know, it's just, it's a really amazing thing when we take someone's eyes into our own hands, so to speak. And it also got me thinking about how much this is our experience every day with every being that we meet, potentially. Can we take every being that we meet every day, every single person, into our experience as if it were our own eyes? This is a great, a great quote from Dogen Zenji, a, 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 the, the uh, father, so to speak, of the Soto Zen tradition. As if it were our own eyes. You know, that delicate, that precious. Um, and I felt very fortunate. It was, it was a neat teaching. I also got to walk around with uh, an eye patch for the rest of the day um, that gave me the uh, standard uh, ophthalmologically issued eye patch. And, I, and I, I walked, I just felt like saying R all the time. Of course, I didn't. But it was, uh, it was really interesting being kind of, you know, not having that, that sight on that part of my face for a day. Felt uh, very, um, I was filled with gratitude as I was able to take these uh, little bandages off and realize that uh, she hadn't dropped the scalpel. Um, that doesn't mean I don't deal with my own special kind of blindness each day. Whatever it is, blind to what is happening, as do we all. So our practice, quite frankly, is about seeing clearly. Our practice as students of, of uh, uh, my training Zen, you know, students of Zen, what is our work? As Zen students, it's to see things clearly. And question. Question every single thing we possibly can. You know, openly. And in that openness, it's not so much that we're looking or yearning for an answer, but we begin to question the yearning and the impulse to that almost desperate hope that we seem to carry with us so much of the time. And in so doing, there's a certain relaxation that kind of comes up. I had a discussion with a, uh, a woman of a, of a phone uh, Skype uh, Dokusan. Dokusan, by the way, for any of you who aren't familiar with it, is in the Zen tradition, it uh, loosely translates into one mind, and it's when the teacher and the student have a dialogue. And one of the beauties of the net is that we can actually have these dialogues uh, quite far away. She's on a very remote and very remote place. She has no sangha. Um, um, she listens to our podcasts all the time and feels like she's a member of this group. Um, but at the same time, she's very, very far away from much of humanity. And she, in this Skype interview, was talking about, um, uh, you know, one of the things that's been coming up for her in practice is just this paralyzing fear. 
It's paralyzing fear that that she'll miss it. This paralyzing fear that it uh, this whole idea that we begin to loosen the uh, uh, the bonds, so to speak, and the the strictures and constraints of our mind and let it loose that this will somehow really be devastating to everything that she's worked so hard to build. And of course, as any sensitive, caring teacher would say, I said, good. And then she kind of giggled, but she said, seriously. And I said, so am I. I'm saying this seriously with a smile, but precisely what we're looking to do is to begin to stare, study, and participate intimately with everything we've ever done and everything we hope to achieve. We start to participate by being right next to it without grabbing. We don't grab on to some future aspiration, future dream, future, we don't, we just don't hang on. And similarly, we don't hang on to our past. We refuse openly to grip. And instead, what we find is in this openness, we're able to participate in a much more relaxed way. And then, of course, you can almost, when you guys uh, start sitting in front of people teaching and leading sanghas, you'll get this question all the time. It's like, okay, well, if I'm letting go, how can I participate? And, I mean, it's a beautiful question. If you're letting go, actually, your participation is enhanced. Have you ever seen someone who is caught by their mind or their bodies while they're trying to execute something with their mind or their bodies? It's almost like they're dealing with some type of convulsion or hiccuping, or it's, it's someone who, classic example, is someone who forgets their lines on stage and tries to fight to get them. You find the actor or performer forcing it. Similarly, you don't find too many uh, athletes or in this case, what I was watching this this last weekend that just was dumbfounding to me with these skiers. They were doing some some work on a on a half pipe, and they were uh, it was a competition and everything. And they were they were skiing and doing these amazing things with their bodies. And then you know the preview for uh, next week, we will be featuring snowmobile jumping and then you see like the snowmobile this guy does a flip on his snowmobile or he gets way off the snowmobile and then lands perfectly if you're doing something with your body and you're thinking about it you're going to wipe out and you talk to any of these people and they'll agree it's not about being here it's not about thinking about what you're doing it's about letting go into the experience fully and participating with it as it's going on And as we practice this, what we're doing is we're practicing an effortlessness. And this effortlessness is when we are directly plugged into kind of that that one source, or sometimes I flippantly call it the deep singularity. This universe 
as it is unfolding right now, unfettered by our own plans for it. Our plans for this universe become meaningless. The universe, as always, knows exactly what it's doing. The question becomes, do we have the courage to participate? Are we ready to do that dance? And if you are, if you think you are, you probably are. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. If you're ready to do this dance, sit still. Sit still, be quiet, and really just let the resonance of the Big Bang, its echo, work its way through you. Be there for it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to master anything. You just have to be still. Pretty easy, huh? So let's give it a shot. We're going to be still here. Um, going to be still for just about 30 or so minutes. And uh, in that process, if you find yourself in a non-still space, if you find yourself thinking, oh, thinking. If you find yourself kind of uh, obsessing over something, oh, obsessing. If you find discomfort in your body, huh, discomfort. But that's about all you need to do to really become deeply present with exactly what's going on as it's going on. We're just there. We're not giving any of our analytical skill to any of it. We're just skiing the half pipe. We're just right there for whatever is happening, fully, completely. You ready? <laughs> I'm remembering this time <laughs> when, uh, uh, I was sitting in in the uh, in the zendo. <laughs> it was this dharma talk that was about to be given, and there's this chant um, that goes, you know, it goes along, and then it says, "I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words." And I remember I just kind of learned the, you know, the words to this thing, and it was so cool that we were all saying this at once. Um, even though I had no idea, you know, what a Tathagata was. And then I, uh, I mean, you just go along with it. When you're in a Zendo with a bunch of Zenists, you just, you just go with it. Um, so you don't get whacked with a stick or anything. But anyway, so I, I, (laughs) there was this guy, bless his heart, sitting in front of me. I was in one of the chairs and, uh, uh, there's this guy in front of me who was, um, I want to be really skillful how I say this. Really old. And um, 
<laughs> and he says, it was so priceless. It was so priceless. He says to the woman next to him, who uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing was, a, um, you know, was a, perhaps a, you know, a daughter or a niece or something like that, substantially younger, uh, or maybe it was just a very interesting partnership, whatever. Um, the, the guy says, Tatagata? What the heck is a Tatagata? <laughs> So as I'm sitting here, just for some reason, I was just kind of going through, oh, I vow to taste the truth. What the heck? <laughs> so, uh, so I'll tell you what the heck a Tathagata is. It's, uh, I assumed, uh, almost rightly, that it was um, the Buddha. And when I think uh, or thought of the Buddha, it was Shakyamuni Buddha, the prince of the Shakyas, who had decided to bail on his uh, you know, wife and child and take off and really underst- you know, understand the nature of suffering. He'd, he'd seen old age, sickness, and death for the first time, and he decides, I'm out of here. I want to really experience this thing called life. I want answers for myself. So he takes off, but... Uh, my assumption was that that was the Tathagata. But actually, the way my teacher explained the translation to me some years later was Tathagata means the one who sees and embodies reality. Which is not really separate from, nor is it different from the Buddha. What does Buddha mean? Awakened one. Buddha. Bud. Bud. Okay? Okay? The Buddha, the awakened one. It doesn't mean you're a god. It doesn't mean, you know, you're a king. It doesn't mean, you know, what does Buddha mean? It means you're awake, which is exactly the way the legend goes. What are you? I'm awake. That, that was his, his claim or her claim. Not that it matters. Because it's all mythological BS as far as I'm concerned anyway. Watch the lightning strike. (laughs) Bring it. Okay? It's so not important. Except that it gives us kind of these archetypal references that we we can lean into as we ourselves are endeavoring to awaken. To not necessarily be a housewife, a grandfather, a partner, a citizen, a democrat. Okay? But rather, we are looking to be awake. So, my point here is that vowing to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words, in other words, really kind of committing to opening to this gift that's waiting for every single one of us, allows us to then embody or earn the gift's contents. It's interesting, um, as I understand it, uh, when I, I, I am using the word gift, I don't, in uh, Arabic, I believe it's hal. Is that how you say gift? Does anybody speak Arabic? Is it hal? No? Nobody tonight? Hal, gift. And, um, and then, actually, in Zen, we might refer to it as satori, the awakening experience. And then that satori is quite meaningless unless we can embody the content of that awakening experience. And the awakening experience universally shows us that we are utterly 
interdependent with everything else, that all things are totally temporary. We begin to see, and if you will, open to what is beyond time being past and future. We begin to kind of recognize the potency of now. And we then also can begin to see how we no longer need to identify with our thinking. No longer identifying with thought. No longer identifying with body. We are open, available vessels that can have, quite literally, peace working itself through us consciously. Pretty cool. Ancient. And it is not specific to Buddhism. It really isn't. So if we vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words, essentially what we're looking to do is we're looking to embody a reality that goes past our thoughts and feelings about reality. And we can't do this without shutting up, sitting still. Cannot happen. You might have an experience on, uh, on your bike or during a run, let's say, or even while you're sorting mail or whatever it is that you do, you might have an experience, kind of an aha moment, but really that gift, we want to earn that gift, want to earn that by letting the gift show itself through us consciously so that we live right next to it all the time. And that's what a practice does. That's what a sangha does. It gives us this continual support. It's a continual reminder that the universe itself is working its damnedest to give us this awakening. We just have to be ready to receive it. And every single time we sit, we get more and more ready to receive it. It's incredibly natural rather than being supernatural, as in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mystical experience. Well, of course it is a mystical experience in that it can't be explained, really. That's kind of what makes it cool, on the one hand. On the other hand, it is very natural. It always cracks me up how so many people are so quick to dispel any type of mystical experience anyone might have on a cushion, and yet none of them have tried the experiment, which is sitting still, for hours and hours and hours on a cushion. And those that have and have begun to write about it, I think, have uh, actually helped bring consciousness along in pretty cool ways, pretty powerful ways. I bring this up just as a way of encouraging. I encourage simultaneously your skepticism, your healthy sense of questioning, of doubt, without getting caught by any of it. Without getting caught by doubt, we weave doubt into this mix, wondering. I continually tell you guys, for instance, do not take my word for anything. It is worthless. And I'm not saying anything unique. 
I'm offering you nothing. Don't take my word for that either. <laughs> so what we'll try to do here tonight, just in the 30 or so minutes that we're sitting, is just be available. Just be available to what is. The Tathagata is available to reality as it is. The Tathagata isn't trying to adjust anything. Isn't trying to make something a little bit different. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. I think I'll move. No, the Tathagata is sitting with the discomfort, actually. Push yourself a little bit tonight. If the tendency is to move, is to check, you know, whatever. Try just studying that impulse. Now, suddenly you're having a wild attack of sciatica. Please stand up. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, this isn't about torture, but it really is about kind of testing our resolve continually. So give it some, give it some, uh, give it a little fire tonight. See what happens. It might be incredibly difficult. Awesome. You might have a breakthrough. Awesome. It might be somewhere in between. Awesome. You can't screw it up. <laughs>